You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Hustle and Toys get you surprise Oscar nominations. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin, man. I am Adam Thomas. And uh, I am Thomas Mariani, and we are both surprisingly nominated this year for Oscars for uh, Best Costume Design and Best uh, Original Song. You didn't know that, but we are. Also, I think we're one of the 15 people nominated for the Borat movie screenplay. Yeah, right. no, I know, which is insane. Very true, very true. But, and we're not the only ones here uh, for this week. Uh, we have special guests here. He's the managing editor at The Underseen is Mr. Andres Guzman. Andres, welcome to the show. Hello, guys. How are you? Uh, we're doing all right. You know, we're just, we just got Oscar fever. We just can't wait for the award ceremony, the weird, weird award ceremony we're going to be getting this coming Sunday. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised... Because normally I look forward to it every year, but now it's like snuck up on me. I mean, I know year like time doesn't really exist the same way anymore, but at the same time, I'm still like, oh shit, that is next week. That's right. Yeah, it also, it's just because it's the weird time displacement because it's the first time it's taken place past like March since like the early days of the Academy Awards. It's kind of weird. Um, but then obviously the way the ceremony is going to be done, or it's a weird thing where some people are in person, but some people aren't. Um, it's going to be very interesting. I guess they kind of saw what they should show the Emmys were, and they were like, nah, we're not, I guess, doing it like that. But, but you know, Adam, I know you're not a huge Oscar person, but um, are, you, are you at least sort of interested in the specific topic we decided to do, where every year we do some kind of Oscar-related topic, but uh, this time we decided to do something a bit fun, where we're like, let's look back at a couple movies who you would be genuinely surprised to see were nominated for Oscars. Is that at least a tickle your fancy yeah no i think this is a it's a it's a really cool sort of idea i I like this topic it's definitely one that's not really discussed that often at least as far as my limited knowledge of film podcasts go uh yeah i think it's pretty exciting i you know there's hundreds and hundreds of picks that we could have done so uh, yeah it's pretty fun this wouldn't be this would be one that i wouldn't mind revisiting maybe next year or you know, eventually, if we're even still going and or alive. Great, great, great positive outlook to, to think of in the, in the next year. <laughs> um, but but no, no, I, I think it, I really liked the idea of doing this topic because we've done like Best Picture winners or movies nominated for multiple Oscars beforehand. Uh, but this I thought was interesting just because when I was younger, I always liked especially going to IMDb and just searching things about movies in particular and finding out like, oh, wait, this was nominated for an Oscar. Stuff like, I remember a previous one we've covered on the show that kind of fits that is finding out something like the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle Jr. got a Best Song nomination. That's a true fact. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) 
Oscar nominated junior. I did not know that one. Yeah, I know. That's that's one of the fun ones with this. But does that sort of interest you as well, Andreas, as a film fan? Yeah, I kind of I'm in Toronto and every year with a few friends, like I have a Oscar viewing party. It's like controversial thing for me because it's like I love it. But at the same time, I know it doesn't really mean that much. So it's like that battle wanting to see the right things win and then when it doesn't it's like well whatever who cares anyway um but i'm also a huge like imdb trivia dude nerd and so this is like entirely up my alley right of course and we're definitely covering two movies that fit the bill of ones you wouldn't suspect were nominated for oscars but they were and one even one an Oscar, as we'll get to in a second. For those of you who are new at the end of every show adam and i end up picking a random double feature uh, that's based around a topic. So for this, we had um, the good pick, that was one of Adam's picks, of Hustle and Flow, which we'll be talking about. And our bad pick is Toys, which was my bad pick, which are two uh, very interesting films that both received Oscar nominations. Uh, we'll go ahead and go to our first one, though, our good pick, Hustle and Flow. It's like all my days, I've been hearing this this beat in my head, man. Like a pounding, but then sometimes, man, it get real soft. Man, it's like I can't be stopped. Let's go! I'm gonna make these suckers recognize I am playing ho. His words tell the story. It's hard out here for a pimp, man. For real. Hold on, I like that, man. It's hard out here for a pimp. Feel that. This is the man I was telling you about. This here the man. Just give me a chance to get my voice heard. Let me sing like you do. Meant the world to me. Hustle and flow. It ain't the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. So A Hustle and Flow came out July 22nd, 2005 from writer-director Craig Brewer, who we talked about his film Dolomite Is My Name few weeks back mm-hmm. and um we are obviously covering it because it was nominated for a couple oscars one for terrence howard for best actor and the more famous one being its best original song nomination for uh three six mafias it's hard out here for a pimp which also won the oscar uh back in 2006 and uh it had won over interestingly uh in the deep which was by uh, kathleen york from crash and traveling through by Dolly Parton from the movie Transamerica, it won over both of those. And I, we have to briefly at least talk about the actual point where it won. Is one of like my favorite Oscar moments I remember watching live during that ceremony. One because Three Six Mafia had just gotten done performing the song along with Taraji P Henson, um, and so they actually yes. are accepting the Oscar when they do in uh, the their usual attire, uh, which is so interesting to see them on this big fancy stage wearing like hoodies and t-shirts and jeans. Um, but it's really endearing to see even down to like when they're announced, it's by Queen Latifah who was presenting the award and she was so excited and started singing the song briefly before they were announced as the winner. And even Dolly Parton just has this beam on her face, even though she's losing to these guys. And it's so endearing to see them just go up there and accept their award. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. One of my favorite things from the Oscars ever is even after that, when Jon Stewart came back on, because he was hosting that year. And he, he made sort of the dig at them. Uh, but it was all in jest. But, you know, for those keeping track at home, 
Three Six Mafia, one Oscar. Martin Scorsese, zero. <laughs> right, that's true, because this was the year before <laughs> The Departed, so he hadn't even won at that point. Also, such a weird thing where, like, the actual performance of that song, that it directly preceded the announcement of their win, is such a weird performance where, like, Three Six Mafia and Taraji B. Henson are doing a great job. But it's this weird thing where it was the first time a hip-hop song was performed, not nominated, because Eight Miles, uh, Lose Yourself, was nominated, but he didn't perform Eminem at the ceremony. And you can tell the Academy sings out of step with it because they have their usual dancers out front, but they're, like, dance-performing plot points from the movie. <laughs> down to... I know! <laughs> it's so fucking funny. <laughs> like, down to... They get a guy to play um, the Terrence Howard character who won. He looks like Kevin Klein from, like... Uh, a fish called Wanda, so he's not a black guy. It was really weird. And then also, it's like him and a guy dressed up as Ludacris's character are like kind of play fighting each other. <laughs> At what point? Oh, it's the best. It's, it's the best. So silly. Oh, it's a great moment. But of course, the reasoning any of that happened was because Hustle and Flow came out. And Adam, this was your good pick. And then why don't you explain why you decided to pick this one in particular? Uh, well, I mean, do you want me to give a synopsis as well? Sure, if you'd like to, yeah. Brief synopsis is, uh, the film follows this guy, DJ, who's a pimp in, uh, you know, sort of the South. And, you know, I want to call him a good pimp. He sort of discovers uh, making music and it sort of uh, it consumes his life and he uses all his means to make it big. But he also can't escape this violent, crime-ridden life he's made for himself at the same time. And, and so on and so forth. Consequences, actions, consequences. I picked it. Uh, simply because I really do like this movie, uh, but there is nothing about this movie that screams Oscar to me. Even the fact that it won is like su- sort of surprising to me, but the fact that it was even nominated for anything is really sort of mind-blowing to me because this is not the typical Academy sort of recognized film in any way. It's, it's very unique for sure. I'm curious, so... Andres, had you seen this movie before, or if not, or if so, what what do you think of it in general? I actually haven't seen either of the films until watching them for this podcast, but uh, I'm kind of upset that it took me so long to see Hustle and Flow because it made me realize, like, I think Howard really is a underrated actor, and, like, he does so well in this. I agree with the fact that it's definitely not a movie I would watch and be like, oh, yeah, that's definitely nominated for an Oscar. So... It takes me a bit by surprise, but it also, like, tackled very specifically that Southern rap at that time. Because when some of the music started coming in, I remember it was like, oh, I felt like I was listening to those same songs as they were coming out so many years ago. It really is a good movie that I'm surprised, as it's chosen, was, like, rewarded as such. Yeah, I hadn't seen it either until doing this for the show i remember when it came out i remember obviously the ceremony and everything i remember this being like oh this that's such a fun thing that they won that's great um and i never did see the movie still despite that um it it might be a shocker to everyone out there that i wasn't probably the biggest hip-hop fan when i was younger um in case you couldn't tell from the voice i'm extremely white to to say the least wait a second i I know but i'm also (laughs) extremely white and i'm a huge fan right right (laughs) but i think you wear that more than i would potentially yes that's probably true um even though i I like a good hip-hop song i'm just i was not especially at this time i remember though that like a lot of uh sort of southern hip-hop was a big thing especially um atlanta georgia in particular had a lot of uh people that were 
cropped up more like the late 90s into the early 2000s but i was like outcast people like that who i'd been a fan mm-hmm. of to some extent but at the same time i still wasn't as up on necessarily the memphis scene in particular i'm not even sure if that, was there a huge like memphis outpour uh or hip-hop historian adam thomas i mean not necessarily not necessarily huge uh but there was a lot of underground stuff that came from memphis there was a lot of really dope mixtapes that came out of there i mean if we're comparing it like georgia was atlanta especially if you're going southern hip-hop that's probably the pinnacle mm-hmm. but yeah memphis definitely had a pretty pretty good little scene i mean it wasn't you know, nothing monumental, but yeah, it was definitely there. Well, and I think that kind of works for the movie, especially watching it, because it feels definitely like these people are really trying to go against the grain and become, like, hip-hop musicians in a way that's really endearing as well, because it's very much like a gumption, these kids gotta, like, perform their show, only in this case it's very much a hip-hop sort of trend for it. And I think it works when it kind of balances out that kind of like that movie premise of like, oh, we're creative kids just want to make it out there in the world with sort of the more grounded realism stuff, particularly about Terrence Howard's character being a pimp and then also hang out with that Taron Manning and Trashby Henson um, and various other people who have been sex workers in the past. And I like that the movie doesn't really look down on the actual sex work as much as it does just like the squalor that they're kind of in. Is, is more just a factor of them not having, you know, necessarily a lot of support. Because it doesn't look down on, like, Taryn Manning for being a sex worker. She's an endearing, fun, bubbly character who you like being around. Same thing with Trash B. Henson, who honestly is the heart of the movie to me. This is sort of a oh, movie that really, like, broke her out, and she's so, so endearing and charming in this movie. Yeah, no, she's absolutely fantastic. But, um, you know, Andres, how did you feel? I mean, we obviously already mentioned Terrence Howard's performance, but... Would you say this is in the upper echelon of sort of the Terrence Howard's performances? Well, I mean, that's the other thing. I guess, like, he's so used to being, like, in the things I've seen, the supporting characters that I don't see him in that spotlight as often. So I think that was part of one of the reasons why I'm, like, he's giving it his all, and he is um, able to perform as something I haven't really seen as much no that's true i think it's also especially interesting because this was around the time he was really starting to pop as an actor in a way where especially with like this movie and some of his other choices you're just like at this time i remember feeling like oh man he's like an interesting new voice and he makes really creative different choices he's got a lot of rage and anger in him i'm sure that's just a really good affectation from him that just comes from the acting choices as opposed to as time went on you found out oh that's just terrence howard like there's oh yeah no he's crazy yeah like he's legitimately crazy to sort of study for this this episode even though i've already seen it but i i rewatched it wherever it was at the golden globes or whatever where they interviewed him uh because he said he was leaving empire so it's probably the emmys and his speech what he told the interviewers is one of the craziest things i've ever heard in my life you know where i found the flower of life and it's opened itself up to me and now i'm just going to study to leave things for my generation and future generations you're like what the fuck is this guy talking about i would still say the peak is teriology which if you don't know was he's apparently comes from like an engineering background and he talked about at one point like being very fiercely defendant of the idea of one times one equals two as opposed to one and he went off on like a whole tirade about that it's like two hours long i don't think i'm familiar with that i need to watch that immediately no i mean if you really want to but it's uh you're literally watching a man just slip deeper into insanity on screen (laughs) like it's pretty intense 
Yeah. But, uh, you know, the thing is about Terrence Howard in this movie, when I when I first saw this, and, and still even now, I mean, at first the accent is a little silly. I, I got to be honest. It's a little silly. But he's so fully committed to it that after a while you're like, oh, no, that's just how this guy talks. Like, it's he's so into it and so just giving it everything that, I mean, he, he's so good in this movie. I love his – everything about the character in this movie I love. I love when he's dressing up. It's his version of dressing up, but he's still wearing like shitty clothes. He's got this horrible perm, like you know. But he's still like, this is I'm I'm high class now. But he's still going to that shitty bar. Like it's just such a good study on I don't want to call it class, but just how people perceive themselves and want other people to perceive them as well. And it, it it's really fascinating. Uh, no, no, yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it it feels so individual in particular. It feels like he has so many different affectations. Like even the way that he's looking at, say, the gospel singers when Anthony Anderson brings them over to the church and all that, he's just studying them in a way that feels like, I, I don't know what this man is thinking, but I can tell he's intensely thinking whatever the fuck he's trying to like process to get this into his brain, whatever teriology he's using <laughs> to get to the final result. <laughs> like You can really see that. Weirdly, like you brought up like the accent, like it's so specific and it doesn't really seem to fit with the rest of the film but everyone else is going along with it so you're like shit maybe it, it is what it is it's like it's like a swagger that he carries with him but at the same time like it's even he he's questioning himself at points where he's like i'm it, it's faking your confidence until it's there it feels like there was a lot more layers that they could have dived into that whether it was like written on the script or spoken to with brewer but maybe he was just crazy and came up with all of it himself but it, it it was there and you can sense it yeah i i watched like a making of thing uh where craig brewer even talked about it, it was hard to convince howard to do the role just because he didn't want to necessarily play a pimp because in history of like cinematically like a pimp had been a lot more glossied up like we think of superfly and some of this black exploitation stuff in terms of like what a pimp necessarily is cinematically but i like the fact that there's a lot more of it's like what you, you were talking about andre it's about like there's a whole faking your confidence angle of it even though he comes off intensely uh confident he still has a lot of true weakness to himself which i think makes him a very complex interesting character especially to follow because he is like an awful person at certain times particularly the whole scene where um he kicks out paula j parker and his and her son out of the, the house is brutal. It's so harsh, and he is such an asshole for doing it. But at the same time, you're still, despite how horrible he is about that, you get why he would think of this as, once again, in his weird teriology sort of fashion, why he would be intimidated by this, and why ultimately he would end up doing things near the end of the movie that end up causing him to go to prison and stuff like that. It's, it's where, like, I totally believe why the character would do that. Um, it doesn't necessarily excuse, like, I, I think my biggest problem with the movie really is how quickly that happens at the end with him and Ludacris. Um, I think is like, it, it feels very much like, hey, we just need to rush to get him into prison so we can have, like, you're in prison, but you're such a big hip-hop star. It's all coming for you after you get out of here from prison. That's where I think it becomes less of this authentic, um, interesting study and more into, like, sort of movie cliche. The last, like, ha the last half hour feels like, super rush like yeah if you wrote it all down on paper and you're like oh shit a lot happened <laughs> right you're having this like slow conversation about like where you're from and all this stuff and then all of a sudden it's like oh fight oh jail all this all your success all this and you're like oh i wasn't expecting everything to spiral and 
happen all at once. No, I agree with part of that assumption. I, I do agree with the fact that all of a sudden he goes to prison and, and he's a big, you know, sort of hip-hop radio star and the guards know he is and everything. It, it, that feels a little silly to me. I, I do like sort of the, um, you know, where he's sitting there with Skinny Black or Ludacris um, and they're talking, and, you know, first of all, Ludacris at the beginning is like, you know, go fuck yourself, but then they start smoking weed and getting drunk together and, you know, I don't know how many of us have been in that situation where all of a sudden your enemy becomes your best friend because you're under certain sort of impairments and you're hanging out together and you're shining each other on the whole time. And then obviously when DJ figures out what he did with his mixtape and he beats the fucking shit out of him, to me it feels like a natural progression because inherently DJ is a violent fucking character, man. There's nothing he can do to get away from that. Even when, you know, he thinks like he's on the right track and things are about to happen for him. All it takes is for one thing to send him back to just this violent person. So I had no problem with that. I had no problem with him going to prison or anything, but I, I did not like that all of a sudden he's a huge star now. Right. To the point where like the guards end up like, Oh, Hey, he's the guy who wrote the whoop that trick song. Yeah. They give this, they give this horrible fucking piece of shit. Cause that's a fact of the matter. The movie is he's not a redeemable character. He's a terrible person. Um, but they give him sort of a redemption angle at the end. And we're like, as long as you try hard enough, your dreams can come true. And I don't know that that was the right call. I don't think that was the right sort of button uh, on this movie. No, yeah, I, I think I agree that, like, I believe that he would necessarily do that to Ludacris. It's just more of the quick pace at which we go to the ending of this movie and everything. Like, I think I agree with that Andreas said, just how quickly we get to, like, sort of the end point we're talking about. I think it makes the that huge flaw of the sort of redemptive ending feel all the more perplexing because of how fast-paced we got to this point. The movie, like, whops you in the face <laughs> with just, like, all of this information. Um, but at the same time, there still is a lot of good stuff. Like, I think... Maybe this isn't so hot a take, but I would argue this is the best performance Ludacris has ever had in a movie. So I like that he also is kind of having a similar uh, defense pop up around him because he's this guy who came from this lower place in Memphis and was a big success, but now he's extremely washed up. Which was like, it's a bit early because I think this is not too long after, like, Get Back for Ludacris, but it's not too far off from even Ludacris having that kind of fall. Have you not seen Max Payne? That's Ludacris' best performance. 10 out of 10. Look, look. I mean, I've seen his phenomenal work in Fred Claus, so I'm aware that he's a divine oh, true actor just, of our generation. Oh, talk about an Oscar snub. I know, right? I've seen him go back and forth with Tyrese in several Fast and Furious movies. Great comedic timing. Phenomenal. Yep. Phenomenal. 10 out of 10. Perfect. No, I agree. This is definitely uh, Ludacris' best sort of on-screen performance, 100%. Um, it's, it's probably... If not my favorite, it's definitely up there for Taraji B. Henson. Uh, she's, she, like you said, she is the heart and soul of this movie. She, she's so good. Taryn Manning, it's my favorite performance of hers, too. Um, what about Andreas? Who are some others in the supporting cast you particularly like? I mean, I agree with Ludacris, even, but as you guys were talking about it, I was trying to recall. I was like, how many other things is he in? And I sort of blanked on the entire Fast and Furious franchise, weirdly enough, since they're the biggest thing in the world. But I do love... The rest of the cast, even the two that finish off the like the producing team, Anthony Anderson, DJ Qualls. Yeah, when when DJ walked showed up on screen, I sort of like had a chuckle to myself because I was like, oh, right, this is like early two thousands, of course. But then Taraji B Henson, the scene when she cries 
and talks about like how much it meant for her to be on the song was such a moving and endearing moment even if she jokes around and she's like it might be because i'm pregnant but at the same time it was still like it was as genuine as possibly any other moment in the film i liked how like her and Taryn Manning kind of get into the producing element of it. Once Anthony Anderson and DJ Qualls are really doing stuff, like how she's like, I saw on like a MTV Cribs or whatever, um, somebody had this lava lamp, so I got, I bought you guys a lava lamp. I think it'd be great for the studio. It's just stuff like that. It's like, oh, she's trying so hard to help. And then even like, this was something I really loved about uh, Dolma is My Name, but I love any of the scenes where they're actually getting the creative juices flowing and trying to like edit together all the songs and like, uh, Anthony Anderson and DJ Qualls in particular, how they give notes to Terrence Howard and how often he's just like, I don't know about these notes, I man. It's like, no, it's very simple. Like, you want to get airplay? You can't use, like, motherfucker all the time. You have to, like, get some other words in there to, like, really make it, like, accessible to people. And I like how they managed to, like, kind of end up, particularly the it's hard to hear for a pimp thing when Taraji comes in. I love that entire, that's the best scene of the whole movie. Where she like gets oh, into the the rhythm of doing it, like it's one of, like Dolma is my name. It gets the creative process like so perfectly cinematically in a way few other movies manage to do. But even with that, even with that, like that that is a great scene when she's she's in there singing and stuff. But that that's what I was trying to say about you know Terrence Howard. Some people that I know have seen this movie like oh man yeah like you know if you he, he's going to be such a big star no dude he's even intimidating in her in that scene yes to sing better. Like, he's a, he's a horrible piece of shit. He's so impatient with, like, her simply trying to get the rhythm down. It's just like, give her a fucking second, dude. Jesus, you're being such an asshole. I loved Anthony Anderson's wife as well. I thought she was really good. I thought that was a really good character beat for him. That's a, that's the thing. A lot of the side characters in this, especially Anthony Anderson, they do a really good job of giving him a lot of backstory to his character, but they don't waste a lot of time dwelling on it. Like, you kind of get it. All of it. And it really works. He's really good in this. That's the thing. As good as Terrence Howard is and as good as Taraji P. Henson is, this movie has a very strong supporting cast. Yeah, I mean, even down to DJ Qualls, it's so fascinating because it's like Andreas said, like, I just knew that dude, like, oh, it's the new guy or whatever other yeah. fucking, like, terrible comedies he was in around this time. But this is, like, a really strong performance from him, too. Even the fact that, like, he comes into, like, Terrence Howard and he's not intimidated at all by him. I just love that. The scrawny little white dude comes right up to Terrence Howard. just like, no, nah, man, you gotta, like, fix the song a bit. Like, it's not gonna work. I, I gotta find, like, a tune and everything. It's like, he could, like, snappy would too. He might do it. He definitely wants to do that. Yeah, I agree. He's just so stoked to be there. Like, he's just not reading the room at all. Well, there's a constant with him, like, wanting to smoke or something. Or DJ Sore saying, like, oh, we're going to smoke before we start. Uh, and he's like, no, no, we'll do it after. And then when they, the other scene later, when they end up having the, the fight, and he's like, no, he's like, maybe we should stop and smoke. Oh, he's just like, can't we just smoke a joint? Like, it's this big dramatic delivery of that particular <laughs> line. Or even the scene where they actually do smoke a joint, like, outside, and he just goes off on his, like, white boy tirade about, like, man, like, hip-hop, it really, like, gets you into your soul. You gotta really get into it. And it's, like, an endearing moment, just like, this fucking skinny white boy. It's it's charming. Look at him. It's just, like, it really gets you invested in this weird little, like, makeshift family that's here. And I want to give credit also, Elise Neal is the actress you were referring to, Adam, who played... Uh, yes. the, the the wife of Anthony Anderson. And I like that dynamic too because they come from like more of a middle class family 
And Anthony Anderson's just like, look, I found this guy who has, like, a lot of chops, but he's ignoring his wife so much at the same time because he doesn't want her to, like, really see what he's doing and sort of the squalor that he's in while doing this. But I love that sequence where she comes to uh, Terrence Howard's house. And Terrence Howard, in a rare graceful move for his character, she's like, why don't you, like, stay here and, like, watch us, like, work and stuff like that. And instantly there's, like, no words even exchanged between this husband and wife where she just sees, oh, I get why you have such passion for this. You're good at doing this. And I love that you found something that you have passion in, but it's all communicated just with, like, them looking at each other. It's such a great moment. Yeah, she, like, brings food over and everything else. Yeah, it's a really good scene, man. I agree, where they, they just exchange glances. I, it's an expression I like. You can see the smile in their eyes at each other, where they just, they get each other at that one moment. And it, it's really a really good scene, too. I, I definitely agree. I think Craig Brewer is definitely a filmmaker I'm not 100% familiar with. Because I've seen, like, I'm looking at his IMDb page right now, and I've seen a handful. I think the one I've seen the most was Black Snake Moan. And he's definitely an interesting filmmaker. He's got that, like, especially with the two that came back to back, The Hustle and Flow and Black Snake Moan, they have, like, that, you can feel the heat. And it's always, like, this sweaty and southern style. And he, I think he's got an interesting eye and really good with actors. It's potentially like the script that might, if anything, might have faults. Granted, I'm, I'm a white guy talking about a white guy who's making, uh, if you look at his filmography, predominantly black movies as far as cast and even story. But the one thing that I do appreciate, uh, especially in this movie and even Black Sake Bone and you know other movies like that, is that He's not making them that they're black movies. They're just movies. They're stories. He just makes good movies. He makes stories. He handles it with care. He handles it uh, pretty expertly to where it doesn't come off exploitive. It doesn't come off with like underhanded sort of like racism or even like, you know, how you some white directors when they make black movies or predominantly movies with black cast or it's like out of touch sort of with the material they're trying to tell. Uh, he's just, he makes good movies and you could tell he's a fan of black culture and hip hop and black music and things like that. And he, um, he really sort of appreciates it. And I think there's a lot of care given into it. I think what I like about Brewer from at least the films I've seen of his is he works at his strongest when he's kind of focusing on like an underdog story and it's coming from more of like a class thing as opposed to a specifically racial thing for for him uh where he does cast a lot of black actors uh, and his stories predominantly feature like sort of black characters especially in this case in like a poor economic environment and i think that's where it shines the most because he has said as much as like a lot of this kind of came from his own like upbringing on a class level and i think that's where it relies where he sort of is at his strongest i think you get the inverse sort of effect for him with, say, like, the evil version, I would argue, is, like, a David Ayer, even though he's more about, like, the Latino um, kind of influence, um, where he feels like, oh, no, I specifically understand the experience. And it's like, dude, you live in, like, South Central LA <laughs> when you were younger. doesn't mean that you know this experience. Calm the fuck down. Um, as opposed to, I at least feel like Craig Boer does come at it with, like, a lot more empathy and a lot more, at least, of a focus on, like, I'll focus on what I know more, which is, like, the like, the production design on the house that they live in, I think is so perfect to, like, a poor community house where it doesn't look good by any stretch, but you can see somebody actually living there 
as opposed to you could have gone way over the top with how poor and squalor it looks and make it look almost like a dingy place from like seven as opposed to he makes it feel like a livable place even though it's not um the nicest looking place possible um but uh why, why don't we go ahead into our final thoughts then on uh, hustle and flow then uh Audrey's your final thoughts on hustle and flow i think it's definitely a movie that i'm going to watch again and a bit more frequently and it's definitely something that Soon I'm going to be watching this Terrence Howard video and going to second guess him. But some something I can appreciate uh, him and the rest of the cast more. And then also probably going to make myself want to watch more Craig Brewer stuff. I think, like, I saw Coming to America. I didn't really like it. But I've missed Dolomite is my name. And hearing you guys talk about it is making me realize that I definitely did miss something good with that one. Um, yeah, definitely stole that's my name. Uh, those of you who have not seen Coming to America, uh, we wouldn't recommend it either here on the show. Uh, Adam and I, we're not fans of it. No. No, 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 to say the least. Uh, but Adam, what about your final thoughts on Hustle and Flow? I still think it's a very good movie. Is it a perfect movie? No. But I, I think it fits perfectly with our sort of uh, topic for tonight. Where it's like I cannot believe this was nominated for anything. I think there is a lot of really good performances. I think it's a very good character piece, and uh, you know, as crazy as he might be, Terrence Howard delivers a hell of a performance. It's one of those where I think a lot of people might have shine away from because the movie has a lot to do uh, with hip hop, and I think a lot of people thought it was a hip hop movie, and it's really not. It's just a good movie, and uh, I, I I do thoroughly enjoy it. I, I think it's quite fantastic. Yeah, and for the first time watching it, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, I, I would, you know, I think it has some weird contrivances in the script. I agree that I think hinder it from being necessarily a great movie, but I do think it kind of got lost in the shuffle after it came out. Um, it does feel supremely 2005, um, but not in a way that like totally dates as much as like it feels like it is a an interesting time capsule from that particular period in a way that's kind of endearing. Um, and I think the whole cast makes that work. I think Craig Brewer's direction does a lot for that as well. Uh, even though anything I said about necessarily like how it captures potentially a black experience, keep it with a grain of salt. Uh, none of us here are black, obviously, so we can't quite speak to that. Um, but at the same time, I think it's an interesting sort of exploration about like really creativity and kind of embracing a creative thing that you found in your life. I think it does a really phenomenal job with that. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely recommend, uh, all you out there, watch it if you skipped it at some point. Uh, but on that note, uh, before we get into our next feature, here is a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Here at the Cosmic Pizza Podcast, we make every show from the finest ingredients. Juicy interviews, fiery film lights, delicious desert island DVDs. And pack it all into a slice of life in every episode. Order up our specials now from your delivery guys. Shine from Canada. Dan from Kent in the UK. And Paul from near Liverpool in the UK. Here on the ESO Network. The Cosmic Pizza Podcast. Serving you a slice of life. Mmm. And now it's time for our second feature, Toys. I don't know about you, but that last trailer, <laughs> I've seen it. You know, fast-cutting, big music. What about a different kind of trailer? 
I'm Robin Williams, here on the world's largest soundstage at 20th Century Fox. That's right. This entire wheat field is in one building. I'm here tonight to talk to you about an incredible movie, Toys. Toys trailer. Studio executives and their great insights said, you got a movie about toys. When's a good time to bring it out? Rosh Hashanah? No. Christmas! <laughs> wow, beats the hell out of Groundhog Day! <laughs> toys. It's a Barry Levinson movie. Man Who Made Rain Man. Yeah. Raymond, you like toys? Yeah. So, Toys came out December 18th, 1992. A big holiday movie starring Robin Williams at a peak time for him. This only came out about a month after Aladdin was a big hit. To the point where this is the movie that when Aladdin was coming out, um, Robin Williams specified about like, hey, don't feature me prominently in any of the advertising because I don't want to skirt attention away from Toys. Because he was a big you know, person with Barry Levinson who uh, co-wrote and directed the movie. And this was also a passion project for Barry Levinson, um, who had, like, really wanted to do it ever since, like, the 80s, before he even started doing anything. After the success of, like, Good Morning Vietnam, and in particular Rain Man, uh, he was able to get it funded. And uh, it feels like a passion project in that I don't see how anybody could get this made unless, see, they had made a bunch of other big things. Look, before you, because I'm making you sense do the synopsis on this movie okay because sure. you fucking chose this garbage. sure i did this is a fucking atrocious movie <laughs> go ahead synopsize this shit right sure uh before i even do that should mention the reason here is uh, because it was nominated for both art direction and costume design at the oscars though it lost to howard's end and bram stoker's dracula respectively in those categories. Yeah. Uh, but basically the premise is uh, this follows um, a family called the Zevos, who um, the patriarch played by Donald O'Connor in his final film performance of Singing in the Rain fame, amongst other things, um, is the guy who created this company and he is on his deathbed and he brings in his uh, British brother for some reason, <laughs> played by Michael Gambon, who is like a, lieutenant general in the army i'm not sure what army based on his british accent um and donald connor says hey mike you know i have my son uh, played by robin williams and my daughter played by joan cusack who just don't feel like they're ready to really get into the taking this over after i pass so i want you to do that and so we're introduced to the uh factory through him where all these toys are made and it's this big elaborate like uh, nightmare world where um, everything is bright and sunny and there are animatronics everywhere and they clearly produce toys in the way that any toy factory does with like giant animatronics like spewing out toy parts that's how that works um, but then Michael Gambon's character along with his son played by LL Cool J uh, decides to try and take over the company and basically make it into like a military propaganda machine where they will force children to play these video games that will ultimately make them actually destroy like certain landmarks in real life um which is the best way i could do a plot synopsis that was pretty good because the movie's fucking all over the place <laughs> and it's quite bad and i remember i picked it specifically because i had seen this movie as a child before though i realized watching it like i did not remember much of anything before robin williams does the weird patent speech to the toys that leads into our 40 minute long climax which is one of the most nonsensical things i've seen in a movie 
Uh, but it's also a weird thing where, like, this movie has so much whimsy, but it's also very adult in its themes and even certain sequences, to the point where I guess, like, the main question I want to ask, especially Andreas, um, who hadn't seen this movie before, um, what are your general thoughts, and also, who is this movie for? Um, the movie is solely for potentially Robin Williams and Barry Levinson, but I liked it. Oh. I know. Okay. Uh, compared to Hustle and Flow, it is not something that I'm going to throw on uh, more often, I don't see myself really revisiting it unless one day I decided to write something about it. But other than that, probably not. Personally, I love when a movie just fully dives in and eats itself up. Like, it's entirely itself and pretty much just like, fuck you, if you don't like it, I don't really care. Um, So it's like passion projects like that I always have a softer spot for. But there's something weirdly endearing about for one anything with robin williams sort of gets to me partial bias sure but there's also like it's really stupid and it's really silly and a lot of the jokes really don't work and compared to hustle and flow the ending takes forever i will agree but there is this over-the-top zaniness that i'm kind of like I needed that when I watched it, at least. Okay, you know we're we're not necessarily against somebody having a differing opinion for sure. That's uh, that that, oh, that's that, a... that adds some spice to the conversation. Um, but now to add the specific spice of like just red hot peppers <laughs> to this, um, Adam, uh, you're you're a big fan like Andres, right? Yo, LL Cool J. First of all, is Michael Gambon's son. Second of all, he wants to fuck his robot cousin, <laughs> fucking Joan Cusack. Like, what is this movie? What what is this like? I understand passion projects, and I'm all for that. But passion projects, if they're only for you, is it? It's it's worthless. It's worthless. This movie literally, it's nightmare fuel for children. I saw this when I was a kid too, and it fucking like kind of terrified me. I watch it now, and it scares me on every other level that it didn't when I was a kid. This movie is just fucking. It, 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 flames flames on the side of my face (laughs) it it, it is just it's so fucking crazy and yet boring at the same time like i am so bored by this movie even with all the flashy sets and the costumes and the vehicles and the worst fucking soundtrack i've ever heard it is so bad you didn't love that tori amos song where they were working and everyone sang along to it Oh, or the Christmas song, or the oh, 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 oh yeah, oh, 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 oh yeah, constantly. Like, oh my God, what the fuck? It is so bad. It is so stupid. And you know, Robin Williams is just, you could tell there's like, hey, Robin Williams, you have a suit that smokes. Go ahead and go nuts with it. So it's just like Robin Williams do Robin Williams shtick, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's too much. It, like, it's too much of that. There's no rain on anything in this movie. And it just, it, it, it suffers for it to where they just, whatever we want to do, we're not going to edit any of this. This is what the movie is. And it's fucking ridiculous. It, it, it It's like, if you took the brown acid at Woodstock, this is what you got. Like this, it, this is just, what the fuck? What a, what a conundrum of fuckery this movie is. It, 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 
LL Cool J is Michael Gambon's son. He wears couch camouflage. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here with this. I, I kind of like the visual, at least, of that. And even when he, like, disappears at other certain points and he goes full... I wish they, if anything, played that joke up more. I think that's the most interesting thing about his character. <laughs> 100%. No, I agree with you. And the thing is, I keep saying, you know, like, I hark back to it. Hello, Cool J is Michael Gambon's son. That is the least sort of confusing part of this whole movie. Yeah, he could have adopted him or some shit. Hello, Cool J is probably, like, the best part of the movie. As much as I was praising Robin Williams, I will agree that a lot of it is just him just doing his own stuff and being let free and that definitely has to do with like his experience with on on good morning uh vietnam and everything else uh but not to mention even you brought up the scene where he gives like the entire speech to all the previous toys which was a scene that wasn't in the script it was just something that barry levinson kept the cameras rolling and then robin williams just did it and they're like okay we're putting it in yeah, I, I think you can definitely tell there's a lot of sequences that kind of feel like that. It's also just this weird thing where, like, it's Robin Williams who's going to do plenty of pop culture references, some of which are cringier than others, like his uh, Gandhi impression, which, you know, the, the stuff that holds up least about him is when he yeah. does impressions of yeah. other, like, races yeah. and stuff like that. But, but also, it's just this weird thing where, like, this character who feels so isolated off in this world that we normally just see, like, he's been in this factory for so long has a really good grasp on pop culture that I'm very, like, weirded out by because we're only isolated to, like, this area with, like, the big lush fields um, and, like, this one particular factory and also their weird house that, like, pops up like a pop-up book. I think it's an example where, like, I get why more watching it, why, like, it was nominated for the two categories, like, costume design and art direction because it's a lot. But it also feels like one of those movies where they're so focused on making the world so big and zany that a lot of the stuff with the story and also the characters feels so thin, which is why you get a lot of Robin Williams kind of riffing, which we've, unfortunately, we've talked about so many bad Robin Williams movies on the show, we've never done a good one, which I still feel kind of guilty about. <laughs> we need to kind of, I think, balance that out a bit yeah. more in the future. Um, but I think this is a prime example, especially at his prime in like the early 90s, of him just going off in a way that, isn't really isn't had any rain to it like in aladdin there's a bit more of a rain because there's a story around robin williams so like that stuff doesn't bother you as much even though they're like he's like out of time making reference to like jack nicholson um as opposed to here where it feels just like we don't have anything so robin riff robin williams performance in this feels like like a jimmy fallon impersonation of robin williams do you know what i mean it's like look over here oh yeah i want that guy like, it's just nonstop. He doesn't do enough laughing and breaking the character, though. No, at all. Um, I mean, I get the idea that he's supposed to be like a sort of man-child or whatever who's really in love with these toys that his father built, which, by the way, are the worst fucking toys, like, ever made. Like, like these tin toys, like, no kids at this, no, no kids want to play with this shit anymore. Like, and maybe that's sort of the idea of the movie. Like, let's get back to, you know, the classics. It's the pop culture references. I, I think you actually hit it right on the head, and I didn't think about it this way. But I think it is the pop culture references that sort of betray the character. Like, if he was just this sort of man-child um, who really loved to, you know, imagination, loved to play, and loved to do all these things, then it would make more sense. But the fact of the matter is he's referencing new things and he's really trying to get laid. 
like and even has jokes about how he's trying to get laid it makes it hard to watch like because i don't get the character and you're supposed to follow this guy yeah the robin wright supply in particular is so creepy (laughs) it's so gross (laughs) and i just feel so bad because this is robin wright also very like a lot of people here very early in their careers and robin wright is like so trying to be like oh i'm so charmed by this guy while i'm wearing these big elaborate suits for some reason um and like she has to like laugh along with his jokes and stuff like that it just feels so weird and especially when we get to once to get like that weird element where they have sex and jamie fox in his film debut is filming them having sex in the little robot and all this other stuff once again exemplifying like who is this for this looks like a big fucking peewee's playhouse thing but they're gonna fuck what (laughs) Hey man, there's no question Pee Wee was fucking too. I mean, let's be honest. I, I don't I, I didn't I didn't want that question answered. I'm very good with Pee Wee being like a <laughs> well, SpongeBob. I just did it for you. <laughs> I did it for you. Yeah, no, I agree. This isn't for children, it isn't for adults. This movie is literally a Levinson passion project that we called. This movie is for nobody. Well, but it's, him. I mean, it's a bit for Andres, I guess to to <laughs> give him a bit more of a spotlight for like what are some other things you liked about it? Andres, I make you at least like kind of endeared to watch it. See, now it's weird. Now I'm on the spot, and I feel like I forgot it all. <laughs> uh, I think it was some of some of the genuineness. Like you, you brought up the Robin Wright stuff, and I think I was like, "Oh, this is somewhat charming." At first, thinking like it was like sort of friendly, jokingly, but then when it like really went into him pursuing a relationship and more i was like oh this is getting weird i didn't need you to make a joke about getting laid that was definitely uncalled for but there was some of like it's almost almost willy wonka-esque but less fascinating and interesting and it's it's almost like them trying to figure out like behind it like that's how i envisioning maybe levinson coming up with the idea but there is definitely aspects of it that seem also pulled from other things like even later on in the film when they talk about trying to do the the finalized drones and it's like it feels like ender's game slash war games and so it's weird what it pulls from well right i i would say i think that's where i got the most interested in whatever plot was going on here was when they sort of get to an ender's game scenario that michael gambon's kind of envisioning even the sequence where he goes to the arcade and he starts like playing that one game where, like, the UN trucks keep coming by, and he specifically aims for the UN trucks after a while. Like, none of it's subtle, but I at least found it, like, okay, this is actually kind of coming to an interesting theme. And even, like, the drone element of it feels a bit more predictive than one would give, like, you know, expect from a movie from, like, 1992 about, like, kind of, like, drone and warfare. And even the fact that that becomes so a part of video games. Like, that was obviously still a thing you had early military games. But, like, this predates, like, a Call of Duty, anything else like that, where it becomes, like, we're ingraining children into the idea of being um, ensued in what basically feels like a combat simulator. I think that stuff has, like, a lot of interesting potential. That's, like, there's a solid 20-minute chunk where Michael Gambon's expounding upon that, where I'm like, okay, this feels like we're kind of coming to a thematic head at this point. And then it gets to the whole climax. It's so fucking long and endless with toys just attacking each other (laughs) poorly at that. I'm just like, why? Why are we doing this? And, you know, I'll honestly say... Despite how it feels like a lame talking head song, I kind of dug the music video sequence. More because it kind of distracted me from whatever was actually going on. It also felt weirdly predictive of, like, Ghost Protocol. 
like the sequence where Tom Cruise puts up the fucking thing in front of the hallway that does a simulation thing. And from like, huh? Did did, did Brad Bird kind of steal this? <laughs> it's a fucking reach knife in it. <laughs> like the setup, even like it looks exactly the same. Like from behind, how they're trying to like sneak out and do all that shit. Like it looks exactly. It's the same exact rig. I mean, if Brad Bird watched this and stole someone from Ghost Protocol, then I guess. All right. Well, way to go, toys. I get the nominations. I do get it because it is sort of wacky and, you know, with the costume design and everything else. Like, I understand. But, you know, Andres even said it best. I've seen it before. Willy Wonka. I've seen it. We saw it. Pee Wee's Playhouse. Like, we've seen this. We've seen this shtick. We've seen all of this before. Tim Burton has done this forever. It's his entire career. His entire career. And I'd, I'd argue that it might be a better movie if Tim Burton did it. Probably fucking a lot weirder. This is one of those weird conundrum movies where I'm like, this doesn't make sense on any level. There is no target audience for this. There, there never was. And I don't understand putting that much of a budget behind anything or greenlighting something to where it's made for no one. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I think that's the thing is passion projects are so more missed than hit for me from directors. Those tend to be the ones that we talk about where it's like, oh, this was a big blank check movie that either really succeeded despite itself um, or just really sank down. This is obviously an example of more of the sinking down, which is more common, honestly, with these kind of movies. And, like, I would love if this was a surprise gem. Like, I would love to have that feeling, Andres, because, like, I don't want, I didn't want to go into this, like, really having a movie I disliked as much as I ultimately did. Um, but at the same time, like, I can't help it where maybe if this was not two hours long, I'd feel a lot more endeared to it and I feel more of that whimsy to it. But it feels like it's so bloated and lagging that it doesn't even have, like, the fun pace to make it work on the sort of whimsical level. Because we have to have so many weird just scenes that. Fl- just like lay flat like particularly we haven't talked much about her but Joan Cusack's entire character frustrates me so much in this movie where it is just like oh hey I'm the sister of the Robin Williams character and I guess I'm wacky but my idea of wacky is I eat different sandwiches like I have a mayonnaise sandwich with vitamins in it and then I want an applesauce sandwich and then I'm a robot. Yeah, why does she need to eat? Well, right, exactly. I guess she like likes to eat. I don't know. And by the way, the robot thing terrified me as a child. I like the scene where <laughs> her like fucking head oh, no, pops off, too. and you, especially there's a shot where you see the gears of her head like next to her ear, and I was just like, oh, yes. this is mortifying. I can't ever watch Joan Cusack movie again without thinking of this. Absolutely. I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, no one would expect. <laughs> it was that. A, it was a genuine twist. I know there was like the constant like throwaway joke was like, why do you always look the same? How do you never age? And then it was just like, it just happened. And it's like, well, I was lonely. So my dad made a, made a robot to be my sister. And I'm like, what? Why? Especially if you figure like he was a child at some point when Joan Cusick was made, like, why did you make her like a 30 year old robot sister? (laughs) Why? (laughs) There's so many weird, creepy implications. It is so bizarre. Like, what is the point of any of that? I, I just, again, What is the point of any of this? This whole movie. What is the point? I don't understand the point. There is no point. Yeah. There's not, there's not, except I guess really is just to kind of create this vision, which I'll, I'll give credit to at least. I I agree that I think I get why the costumes were nominated because they are so elaborate. Even Joan Cusack wears the weirdest costumes throughout most of this movie. 
the actual designs of like the sets, which were built on like the Fox Studio set in Los Angeles and like on like some of the largest stages possible. Right. And it does feel like okay, there's a lot of interesting visual stuff. I know it was kind of influenced by. I apologize if I forgot the painter's name, but the guy who did, like, the painting of the guy with the green apple in front of his face. I forget what that guy's name is. Yeah, was. yeah. But, oh, like, oh, damn it. That was the, sort of the main artistic um, inspiration for that. And I think some of the sets do look, like, fascinating. Like, even the pop-up book element of it, I think, is like, oh, that's so interesting, bizarre. Her, her swan shea lounger bed looks super comfortable. I want that bed. That looked amazing. That looks so good. Even though it was such a horrific fire hazard, it's like, oh, you're covered in like a duck, and like, what if there's like a yeah. fire? You're gonna die instantly. Oh, yeah, you're, you're gonna be cooked inside dead. the duck. Yeah, no, you're dead. Right. And plus, who wants to be covered by ducks? Maybe Howard the duck from our last show. I uh, get a Thomas callback. Also, callback. Uh, the song, the mirror song, one that Robin Williams and Jim Cusack performed, written by Thomas Dolby as well, just like the Howard the Duck song. Oh, way to go. Thomas Dolby blinded me with science and made me deaf with your songs, too. Uh, by the way, that that painter's name is uh, Rene Margita. Margarita uh, is the name of that painter. Oh. Um, we are uncultured. It's fine. We are, we are very we uncultured. Have no, no, of course. Um, I'm sure Andreas knew that. He just didn't want to tell us. He wanted us to get it. Yeah. He's, he's big, I, you know what? I appreciate that address. I appreciate that. He, he's a big fan of the painter, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, <laughs> big, thanks for not big time. Big fan of Belgian <laughs> surrealist artist. <laughs> I'm sure. I have three originals on my wall right now. Oh, fancy. That That's the kind of stuff that won't leave my head anytime soon. It's just like the look of things. Even like that weird elephant in the middle of the, the field and stuff like that. There's memorable images from this movie, I can't at least say, that make it like not a total wash for me necessarily. But I would overall say, yeah, it is a massive, messy movie that we don't get a lot anymore. Like, people investing this so much money in a weird passion project like this. So on some level, it's, you know, unfortunate we don't get, like, that kind of dedication to especially... I love a movie with a big set. Like, a lot of people don't like soundstage sort of, like, very art-directed movies. I love that, especially from around this era. Uh, but at the same time, still doesn't make it necessarily a good movie that's worth watching to me. Which I'll say is my final thought. But, Andreas, uh, what are your final thoughts on toys? It's definitely underappreciated in my opinion, I guess. But it's something that stuck with me and I'm going to... I hope I don't want to revisit it. And then end up following on in, in your shoes and be like, no, no, you're right. This is garbage. Um, I think the biggest problem I have with it is that, as we said, like the movie doesn't know what it wants to be. And it changes every 15 minutes. And there's one thing to the next. And I think once you brought it up, uh, it slowly starts to get interesting when Gambon is, like, dealing with the implications of, like, video games turning into, like, teaching children into being soldiers and stuff. And then immediately throws it out the window for the most bizarre, longest, slow-mo filled with CGI and random toys blowing up next to each other. But there's something about it that made me smile and think this was like, this is dumb. But I had fun during the very long runtime. Well, as long as you had fun, that's the important thing. And uh, to our fun correspondent, Adam Thomas, your final <laughs> thoughts on toys. I mean, I think this movie is, uh, you know, dog shit. I'm flabbergasted by it. I, I just don't understand the thought process behind it, uh, Pasha Project or not. I. I you know, it has to be something where if you're going to make art or a movie 
or music or any form of art, it has to be in some way, yes, a personal passion, but the goal is for other people to relate to it and sort of find themselves in it. And I don't really see that being a factor in this film. Uh, I just don't understand. I, I, I just, it's way too long and it's just unintelligible bullshit. Like I, I just don't understand the point behind this movie, behind the thought process of making it behind the, any of the decisions that are made in it. Uh, I, I just, I think it's, it's terrible. Now, is it, on my list of the worst we covered for the show? No, of course not. This definitely falls into ultimately forgettable. Like I've seen it twice and I finished it today and I'm hard pressed to even like really have any throwback lines that I can quote or anything. Like I, I'm going to forget about this movie. I will never watch it again. Yeah, especially the weird element you talked about with naturalism before we go into our feedback. Um, it's really weird coming from Barry Levinson who kind of got his start with stuff like Diner and, and other movies that felt a bit more like the, the big praise was like, oh, this feels like a naturalistic kind of like conversation that's like been going on. Like that's sort of like what people are attached to with Levinson. So it's so weird that he goes around and does this. It feels so just weird for him. I'm not sure where the passion came from him to do it. Uh, but that is the end of our discussion of our two films. We'll be picking our films for next week at the end of the episode. Stay tuned for that. Well, let's go ahead and share some feedback, because over at DEDB Pod on Facebook and Twitter, we asked all of you, like, hey, what are your favorite and least favorite movies related to every topic we're doing? So uh, we asked you all about your favorite sort of surprise Oscar nominees you wouldn't suspect. And first, uh, James Rodriguez says, uh, it will forever surprise me that Mad Max Fury Road got as many nominations as it did, and all were well-deserved. Uh, considering the Oscars seem to adverse to horror and comedies... I'm shocked about nominations came for people like Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids and The Lighthouse for Best Cinematography. As for Bad, Oscar nominee Norbit for Best Makeup, of course. Um, and then Elwood Tiberius, at Elwood underscore Tiberius on Twitter, says, Not unlikely, but it sucks hard that a piece of revisionist history like Trial of Chicago 7 got nominated. The stock music throughout the opening was a travesty enough. Compare that with Juice and the Black Messiah, and it's no contest. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the recent... Uh, the upcoming Oscars, I will say, I think uh, the clear detractor to me is Trial of Chicago 7. was not a fan whatsoever of that one. Um, I guess we can open this up a bit to, you know, Andres and Adam about uh, maybe commenting on these and also what are some other fun surprise Oscar nominees that you maybe found in the past that you're still fascinated by for good or bad? I'm going to agree that Trial of Chicago 7 uh, and Mank, for that matter, are really boring and I couldn't get into it i love fincher but i'm sorry i believe i was looking i, I recently like wrote a piece that was like a four-year consideration for horror films in and like academy and award ceremonies and it was like doing that that it was reminding myself that the exorcist was nominated for stuff mm -hmm. and it's like how we've gone so far from being able to nominate that to not being able to talk about constant like newer really great performances whether it's tony collette in hereditary or even like elizabeth moss in uh invisible man but these are things that they're always going to look down on horror and so it's any single time one of them like slips through um i'm excited but 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 surprised as well yeah particularly like something like sounds of the lambs is a great example of that 
where no one expected to not only get those nominations but sweep as much as it did. And for the record, also one that could that I think was potentially robbed for that kind of thing is the Lighthouse is mentioned for cinematography, well deserved nomination, but no Willem Dafoe nomination, guys, guys, Dafoe, Dafoe, yeah, Dafoe, Dafoe, um, <laughs> Dafoe. Yeah, no, you know, there's there's several that have been nominated that sort of blow my mind. Like, guys, Suicide Squad was nominated. <laughs> Yo, I sake. hate that sentence. I you hate know what I'm saying? No, and, and Suicide Squad won for Best Makeup. Suicide Squad won. That's right. Pearl Harbor was nominated, guys. So, well, even speaking of Michael Bates, the first three Transformers movies all nominated for, like, sound and effects awards. Vanilla Sky was nominated, yeah. and I love that movie. Yeah, for the, so the Cheryl Crow song, I believe. Uh, Paul McCartney, I believe. Oh, sorry, Paul McCartney, yes. Yeah, Cheryl, Cheryl Crow to Paul McCartney, you <laughs> son of a bitch. Hey, real quick, though. Uh, one of my favorites that was nominated, uh, The Adams Family. The original Adams Family was nominated with Raul Julia. For what was, I'm guessing, like makeup was, or something uh, like that, or costumes? Costume design. Oh, I mean, phenomenal costumes. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Oh, absolutely. Con Air was nominated. Con Air with Nicolas Cage. And it was not for hair design. It was for best for, song, that's, Not best hair and makeup? No. I mean, especially best wind machine <laughs> for, for hair in particular for that movie. I mean, yeah. Cool. Of course. I think, like, along with Andreas talked about, like, the um, the horror end of it, I think that's also similar where it doesn't get as much of the shaft, but comedy in particular tends to be relegated to more, like, occasional, like, screenplay nominees if you find, like, a... The nominee would definitely be like in the screenplay angle for like comedies, but then you get like really like Borat, f- like bo- well Borat, both Borats. That's what's so interesting. Dude, I mean, Bridesmaids, right? Bridesmaids was also brought up, but that was also nominated for um, a screenplay nom. At the same time, there's also just like um, great examples. Like probably my favorite example is Kevin Klein for A Fish Called Wanda, who won as well for that. God, he's he deserved it. It's just, like such a good comedic performance, or even Funny right. Enough. Or even right oh now, like, I know she probably won't win, but I would be so happy if she had a surprise win as Maria Bakalova for the second Borat movie. Because she's so fucking good. Especially how much she has to keep up with fucking Sasha Baron Cohen and does anything even outshines him throughout that whole movie. It's like such a phenomenal turn. But I'm so happy to see get that uh, reception. But um, I think another one, even like one that I know got a lot of criticism at the time, but has aged so perfectly... That Babe won for special effects, but was nominated for, like, Best Actor and Best Director, Screenplay, Picture. Totally deserved. That's a phenomenal movie. I know you love that movie. Yes. And I'm going to go on record right now and say, yeah, no, that's a perfect movie. Yeah. Babe is Babe is just so good. It, it's so heartwarming and sweet. And, yeah, no, it deserves any accolades it could have possibly gotten. Babe is fantastic. I love you, Thomas. <laughs> oh, shucks. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> uh, but um, also there's just weird ones where, like, I get why they were nominated, but just the angle of it. Like, for example, for Adaptation, which I think is a great screenplay, not only was Charlie Kaufman yeah. nominated, but Donald Kaufman, his fictional twin brother, gets a nomination credit for the screenplay. I love it. Which is one of the most insane things that's ever happened. It's just like, you nominated a fictional character <laughs> for a screenplay. Well, there's two that always stick out for me as far as acting uh, wins. One is, don't be wrong, I think she's pretty good in it, but Marissa Tomei for My Cousin Vinny, no. Like, no, it's not that great. She's okay in it. But Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas, he's so over the top, and it, it's just, it's 
it's so phony to me because I know people who suffer from that affliction and I've never met anybody who acts like that. I just don't understand the logic behind that. But again, as we've already said, the Academy is kind of bullshit. He would have far more deserved it for adaptation, which he was also nominated for. I agree. I, I, I do yes, agree I agree. on that. Um, but I would say even with like Marissa Tomei, she was nominated a bunch, like a bunch of fam- like familiar dramatic performances where it's like, it was, I think Redgrave for like Howard's end and Miranda uh-huh. Richardson for damage shit like that. That just feel like, you know what? I'm fine with it going to, especially I, I would argue Tomei is phenomenal in my cousin Finning. And I love a good comedic performance, getting that reception for it. Yeah. I think she's really good in it. She's super funny. She's super cute. But I just don't think it's an Oscar-worthy performance. I, I, I still don't. I, I honestly think that Joe Pesci turned in an Oscar-worthy performance for that movie. I really do. And, uh, you know, that's one thing Joe Pesci was not recognized for. Again, I think he should have been recognized for The Irishman as well and was not. He was so. He was nominated. Yeah, but he didn't win it. So, fuck you. Well, sound logic there. <laughs> um, good point. I think also just one more, like, I love this particular adaptation, but it doesn't also make sense that it technically got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, is Kenneth Branagh for Hamlet. Oh, for God's sakes. Because it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I think the only things he changed were just, like, the setting a bit, and, like, yes. like, in terms of the time period and stuff like that, but it's like, I don't know, did, did, I mean, it says, like, based on the works by Bill Shakespeare, Bill Shakespeare deserved an Oscar nomination with him, if nothing else. <laughs> Like, he's been dead for hundreds of years, but come on. But, well, here's the thing. Do the credits refer to him as Bill Shakespeare? Well, I mean, I'm per- I'm close personal friends with Bill Shakespeare due to my time oh, travel adventures. Right, yeah, yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, me and Bill yeah, go yeah. way back. Um, way back to, like, 1463. <laughs> but... Bill Shakespeare is my auto insurance agent. <laughs> <laughs> is this the winter of discontent? It is for your wallet. It is. It is. Yes. That would be a good commercial. <laughs> For sure, for sure. Um, but you know, just to, before we do continue onward, I think some some fun ones that I do also appreciate usually come in like the song category in particular. Like I think one, Michael McKean getting nominated for the song from A Mighty Wind, which is a great song, and I'm totally so for him getting that nomination. Uh, but also, even this year, we had the um, Hasevik My Hometown song from Eurovision. I am so for that particular song getting nominated. If nothing else, for the fact that. That is the song that convinced me that Eurovision went from an uneven mess to a fun movie I liked. Because before that song pops up, I was so uneven about that movie going back and forth. It's like, oh, I like Rachel McAdams and Dan Stevens, and some of the songs are fun, but it's got so much of the Will Ferrell baggage, and it's also two hours long for a comedy. Why does this have to happen? Then that song comes up, and I'm like, no, this is good. This is a good movie. Yeah, I got (laughs) it. Oh, no, you would hate it. Adam, I will oh, fully really? say you like, would not like it. Knowing you, you would not like the Eurovision uh, movie. Um, but I, um, I, I ended up liking it, despite that. We also had a bit of feedback we, I wanted to read that was sent to us via our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, uh, from Bill L., loyal fan of the show, who, uh, this is a truncated version of a, a rather long email he sent us, but he says, uh, Hi, Adam and Thomas. Um, I always enjoy listening to you. When you're having a good time discussing movies, I've seen Mac and Me twice because of MST3K, which we covered a few weeks ago on the show. I think that movie did one thing right. The aliens didn't heal the kid. 
uh, from what kept him in the wheelchair. Uh, that would have been seen as a message that a kid wouldn't be okay with that as he was. Uh, as for highlighting that the kid was in a wheelchair, I don't think that was wrong. My disabilities don't show that way. I just stick out like a sore thumb sometimes socially. Uh, we're going to be noticed anyway, so as long as people aren't mean about it, it's better than being ignored. Now, about Blade Runner 2049, I'm happy to hear that it was so good, uh, but some of the things you described uh, might trigger me a bit, so I'm probably going to avoid it, but I can at least recommend it out to people. Um, that's why I usually stick to funny movies for me, so I was happy to go to my Riff Tracks library of movies and shorts and watch Double Dragon last night. That was a lot of fun. Look forward to you guys covering on the show. Stay safe. Uh, thank you, Bill. We do appreciate yes. those words, and especially, um, we, we always encourage, like, because Adam and I are two, like, able-bodied, heterosexual white guys. Um, if you find, like, that we have sort of, like, a perspective, like we talked about with uh, the Mac and Me kid in the wheelchair and how we kind of felt like he was being exploited a bit, um, we encourage you to give us, you know, constructive criticism about a different perspective on that. We appreciate having that different perspective to represent on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And if any way we came off offensive, I mean, I sincerely apologize. You know, and this is, again, because I'm going to explain it because it was my opinion I said what I said. Um, I don't have a problem with them referencing that he's in a wheelchair or him being a handicapable actor. I, I think that's actually very, very cool and very progressive, especially for the time. It just, for me, and, and again, this is back into my own opinion, I felt they used it as sort of a uh, unnecessary plot point too much. But again, we're not handicapped. We're, you know, anything like that. So uh yeah any sort of feedback like that i i love it because the only thing that we can do from it is learn and grow so i really appreciate that email bill yes thank you very much and you also stay safe absolutely but uh we want to thank everybody for that feedback also thanks to people like chris oliver who does our intro and outro music for the show listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com uh thanks to emily scarter for the art for our show and thanks to our loyal patreon supporters patreon.com slash pod for just one dollar a month Every month, we give you exclusive uh, podcasts to listen to, and also you get to vote in polls that decide individual movies we cover, or in the case of this particular week, uh, a poll for a topic that we do. And right now, you can vote over there uh, this week, later this week, it'll be up on Wednesday, um, the poll for a Patreon redemption topic. Because, Adam, it's weird to think we've been doing the Patreon for almost a year, coming up in May. That's insane. And so every month, we usually have done a poll where you guys pick between two options, that we do for um, you know the individual uh, episode ultimately by the end of the month, um, and uh, we decided to have a couple losers who hadn't been picked yet to uh, for you to vote against. So your options are either Paranormal Romance, which we had for this February previously as an option that didn't win, or Robert De Niro. So between Paranormal Romance and Robert De Niro as a topic, Adam, that could go any which way. And I'm especially curious to see because our patrons tend to go for the weirder stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, one of the Robert De Niro movies we've talked about would almost qualify for both topics. One of the ones we mentioned. <laughs> that's true. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, that's right. We could definitely potentially do that for the show. Uh, but along with all you patrons, we also want to thank our guest for the week, Andres Guzman. Andres, thank you for coming on the show. And why don't you uh, plug yourself? Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, thank you for having me. This was really fun. Um, mostly, I'll be on Twitter talking about something here and there at Pocket Writer. Um, you can read our my site stuff at The Underscene, but you know sometimes I also write at 
film cred as well, which I've loved doing so. Yeah, I've, I've read a lot of great pieces from you on film cred. That's how I met Andres. And uh, we're also on the Discord, which if you're a patron over at film cred, you can join. We have all sorts of fun discussing uh, random bullshit on the Discord. It's a lot of fun. It's amazing. I, I've spent too many hours and procrastinated like a madman because of it. And I wouldn't change a thing. No, it's, it's really fun. <laughs> But um, for more of our antics here, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. As we mentioned, we put out the feelers every Monday for that, uh, for the feedback section there. And also you can email us, doubleedgedshellville at gmail.com, where you can email us feedback like Bill did. And also you can, uh, if you don't want to support us monthly on Patreon, you can buy our merchandise over on the ESOT Public Store, where you can buy shirts or mugs or tote bags, a lot of stuff with our logo on it. Be a proud representative of Double-Edged Double Bill by doing what, Adam? <laughs> Buy our merch. Buy our merch. You motherfucker. I, I wind I just, Adam up like a toy to do that every week. I mean, just just record a soundbite. What the fuck is going on? Look, you have to contribute something. Something to the yeah. show. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you can find my own individual musings over on Twitter, Instagram, or Letterboxd as at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com or film-cred along with Andreas over there. And also this week, if you want to hear me do more Oscar talk specifically to this year, you can listen to a friend of the show, Rape Telsh's Have Not Seen This podcast, where this particular week he's putting up a bonus episode I recorded with him. And another friend of the show, Emily Slade and Mel Gore, where we talked about the various nominees uh, for this year. It was a very fun discussion, and um, I'm not sure how much Rafe is going to edit it down, but that recording that we did ended up going about two and a half hours. So it's a long one if you want to hear more of me. <laughs> uh, it's a long one. Nobody, Nobody's ever said that, by the way. Ever. <laughs> Probably not. Where can I listen to more Thomas? <laughs> <laughs> There's just so little avenues where he expresses his stupid opinions. I need to hear more. <laughs> uh, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adams, A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. Not a whole lot popping off on there, but if uh, you want to follow me, I'll accept your follow request and I will, you know, share your stuff around too. And uh, just, uh, I vehemently uh, expect you to do the same, you fucking freeloaders. Our our loyal fans, thank you for listening. We appreciate you so much. And especially that you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO Network, why not uh, look at all the other great shows that are on there and take a listen? And uh, you can also dig into our archives on the Podbean feed uh, for full back catalog, including uh, ones we did before we even joined ESO. And nothing else, if you can't buy the merch or support us on Patreon, the completely free way to help us out would be just to rate, review, or even share the show around, because that gets us more of that visibility. Yeah, I mean, it's literally the easiest thing in the world to do. I, I just don't understand why we have to have this conversation with you people every week. You become like a disappointed dad now with our fans. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, you know, I'll make it better. We'll all go outside and have a catch. <laughs> yes, as we all do with all of you, all dozens of you <laughs> that listen, we'll catch yeah. Uh, but now, Adam, it's time to do our picking for next week. And you know, speaking of our patrons, they voted on a poll for this particular episode we're going to be doing next week where we wanted to cover another year from the past. In particular, we decided on an 80s year. 
And uh, you will, uh, Edgelord patrons chose uh, between 1984 and ultimately our winner, which was 1987, which I was very, very happy to see because that's uh, an underrated year, I would say. Oh, definitely, man. There, I mean, there are so many movies. It's so funny when it was chosen. I, I, I sort of did a little bit of research. You know, there's so many movies that mean so much to me that came out in this year. Yeah, so it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, usually at the end of every show, what we do, if you're new, um, Adam and I have, you know, two good or two bad choices, depending on who uh, has the individual thing for the week as we switch off. I have the two good movies this week. Adam has the two bad. And we've assigned a number between one and ten for each of them. And uh, usually each other would pick a number and whatever that's closest to between our two choices that gets us our good and bad feature. But when we have someone like Andreas, our guest for the show, uh, they end up doing the picking. So for my two good choices, Andreas, number between one and ten. Five. Ooh, right down the middle. Okay, well, over at number seven, I had a movie I uh, am quite... Uh, curious to see because I haven't seen it. It's been on my watch list for a while, considering the cast and everything. With Nail and I, starring Richard E. Grant. I haven't seen it either. I, I know I need to, but I don't even. I've never even heard of this. It's a British movie, um, and I've heard great huh? things about yeah. it. Um, and on the other side, I had a movie I have seen many times and love, probably because of my lineage. Over at number one, I had Moonstruck. Oh, that's a great movie. God damn it! All right, well, with Nail and I. That's all right. At least it's something new I haven't seen. So, all right. 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 But now, Andre, is for the bad choices for Adam. Number between one and ten. Two. At numero uno, I have a movie that I loved as a kid. And I think it's a movie that nobody has ever seen. Uh, it stars the not funny Belushi and John Ritter. It is called Real Men. Yeah, I have no idea what the hell this is. Okay. <laughs> Never heard of this. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And at number ten, I had the Garbage Pail Kids movie. Oh, woof, woof. Yeah, you dodged that fucking thing. Oh dear. I think I picked the right choice. Oh, you helped. No, that that was good. (laughs) I'm not going to really suffer this time. For now, there's always the future. So this is interesting. Our choices are. I've never seen the one, and you've well, you've never seen both, but still. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. For sure. Uh, and uh, that will all be next week. But until then, guys, uh, it's time everybody put away their toys, including this one in a chest that never can be recovered. Take it easy, man. <laughs> Good night. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.